Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. Welcome to This Pathological Life and Dr. Travis Brown, you've arranged for a cytologist from ClinPath Pathology to join us for this episode. Why is that? Because today we're talking about cervical screening. Right. So this will be one of the most successful public health screening programs, I I think, that's ever existed. Wow. It's returning back to our episode one, George and Mary Papanicolaou. Oh, so, oh, I've missed them. <laughs> I've missed them. So uh, just as a quick reminder, you know, George was, uh, you know, he was a Greek cytologist mm-hmm. uh, in Greece, trained in Athens and Munich. Um, and in 1913, he was uh, 30 years of age and ended up immigrating to New York. Uh, at the time, uh, he turned out to be a very poor carpet salesperson for a few months uh, and then found a job with Cornell. And at the time, if we remember, he was uh, given the job of studying menstrual cycles in uh, guinea pigs. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll delve a little bit more into this because it, it is relevant. This was a, you know, guinea pigs are not a, a species that visibly bleed during menzies or even shed much tissue. And he learnt to scrape the cervical cells of the guinea pigs and, and to prepare them on a slide for him to view. After some time, what he was found, he was, he was able to identify the cyclic nature of the menstrual cycle in guinea pigs. As time progressed, this is where Mary, his wife, mm-hmm. who gave the, you know, volunteered to do a pap smear every day, which is just incredible. And then what happened was for the better half of a decade, he continued to review these normal smears. He was eventually able to identify the stage and timing of the woman's menstrual cycle just by looking at the cells. But this, this was pointed out to him as a sort of a, a useless skill because unlike guinea pigs, you could just ask women where they are in their cycle and they could tell you. So he, he sort of probably took a little bit of a step back and said, well, how do I make this useful? Uh, and what he realized is he needed to see patients who had pathology. Mm. And so he started getting smears uh, from patients who had cysts and fibroids, inflamed uterus and cervix, pe- you know, people who had infections like streptococcus, gonorrhea, uh, you know, if they had a tubal pregnancy, if they had an abnormal pregnancy, if they had benign tumors, malignant tumors, and abscesses, he got these smears. But what he found... Mm was that with cancer, if they had cervical cancer, they were particularly prone to shedding abnormal and bizarre forms of cells. And so he ended up writing this up, and he presented these findings at a conference in 1928. Now, the conference name is very odd because it's a Race Betterment Eugenics Conference. Gee whiz. (laughs) So, (laughs) unusual, but... His reception to these findings was actually quite cynical and ambivalent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was argued that the procedure was neither accurate nor sensitive, that the cervical biopsy itself would be more accurate, and the smear of the slide was quite unappealing. Again, it, it didn't look pretty for someone to look at. Obviously an audience at a eugenics conference. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, as, as I say, it's just such an unusual title to come across. This mm. pokes out, and, and then even George was was I think uh, disheartened at this, and he wrote at the end of his paper. I think this work will be carried a little further. So hard to know whether he means it's not going to go anywhere or, or that's his feeling. But he then, from 1928 to 1950, did his own research. So for 22 years, was working by himself. He ended up getting a gynecologist by the name of Herbert Trott to join him in interpreting the smears. And he even got a painter. He, he was uh, he was a former colleague at Cornell who was a Japanese fish and bird painter to paint some of the images. And you can look them online. I, I posted one on Twitter. And it's so striking because it looks like what it, we see on the microscope today. And it wasn't until in 1950, while George was discussing his research at a Christmas party with an inebriated young gynecologist that he finally found the incredible value in pap smears. When, and one of his students ended up reciting that. It was a revelation. A pap smear would give a woman a chance to receive a preventative care and greatly decrease the likelihood of her ever developing cancer. So this is a novel concept. By sampling an asymptomatic person... You had the chance of finding disease early and then finding a potential cure. This clearly set off a sequence of events. And by 1952, George was working with the National Cancer Institute. And they set up a program where 150,000 women in Shelby County in Tennessee Hmm. got a pap smear. Now, the sheer volume of work was something that was unheard of. And so they had to set up this giant microscopy facility at the University of Tennessee. But again, no one's really trained in this. So they had to get people who were viewing it. They had to put photographs of normal and abnormal on the walls. And so people would look at the smear and compare and then classify. And so technicians worked day and night. And what they ended up finding was they found 555 women with invasive cancer. Wow. But they also found 557 women with pre-invasive cancer who had the potential for cure. And nearly all of them were asymptomatic and had never been tested. Mm. And so from there, this transformed an incurable and advanced disease to a potentially curable and early intervention disease. So we have George with his persistence... Over decades, Mary volunteering to help him develop that and also running the lab and doing everything else. These two revolutionized cervical diagnosis, screening, and treatment. All hail to them. So we've just recapped the story and the amazing contribution made by George and Mary, but let's now look more specifically at the screening test itself, Travis. So it's important to put screening into into context, and and what we're going to do is sort of compare a few to work out. We unfortunately have good and bad screening tests for different diseases, and there are a few 
principles that we have to rely upon to get that screening test. So there's a few questions, you know, to pose. Is this a useful test or not? And the first one is there a significant burden of disease in the population? Second one is, is there a preclinical stage that we can detect? The third is, does early detection improve the outcome and have acceptable mortality or morbidity if we do intervene? The screening test itself, is it acceptable to people just to do it regularly? Is it inexpensive? And is it accurate? And finally, is there effective treatment for detectable disease? So these questions will have varying answers to what you're wanting to screen for in the population. And so people talk about sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value, negative predictive value. We won't go into that, but they're important things to note about when you go into it a little bit more. And so let's look at the first one, colorectal. So this is a really common cancer. And if we look at the natural history, and, and this will become apparent as we go through the natural history. So what does this path of disease normally go through from its start to end? And so the natural history, we have 70% of colorectal cancers start from what we call an adenoma to carcinoma pathway. So you get a little polyp that we talk about, and then eventually it'll grow into such a large size, turns malignant, becomes a carcinoma. Mm -hmm. So 70% we know go down that pathway. 30%, which we won't talk about today, we talk about de novo. That doesn't go along that pathway, it just develops. And so we know if we have that adenoma carcinoma pathway, it has an annual transition risk of about 2% per year. So if you've got an adenoma, 2% chance that it's going to become carcinoma. But it's, it's not as simple as that, as I'll say. The, the risk factors for that as the size of the polyp or the size of the adenoma and the histological type. So what we see when we look down the microscope. So if you've got a tiny adenoma, really small, less than five millimeter, it takes about 26 years for it to go from adenoma to a carcinoma, to a malignant. If you have a small adenoma, it's around, now talking about six to 10 millimeter, it takes about eight years for it to go to carcinoma. But if you have large, if it's greater than 10 millimeter, it will take about five years. Now, if it's villus, what we call a villus adenoma, so just what we're seeing down the microscope, it takes, it's a little quicker. So if you've got a big villus adenoma over, you know, large one over 10 millimeter, it takes four years. So that's why when we look at it, we know, oh, is this a, you know, not benign, but is this more indolent than its neighbor, you know? And so these long window periods mean, well, if we can detect them early, we can pick them up, take them out, and you've reduced your risk. Mm -hmm. And so now this is where we talk about, I'm not sure if you happen to be in this age bracket, but yes. the age of the, over the age of 50, the fecal occult blood test. Yes, Your, the poo sample. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So now this is between the age in Australia. This happens between 50 and 74. Every two years you can get this test done. It's a screening test of feces to see if blood is in the stool sample that you sent through. You do three. Uh, in three consecutive days, and it sees. Now, we're trying to detect blood in the stool, so but that doesn't correlate exactly. If you're looking for cancer cells, that's different, but we're looking for blood as an indicator of carcinoma. But lots of things can cause bleeding in the bowel, and you'll get a positive test. So the test is, 
blunt. Yes, that's mm. right. And so the the thing we know about that is that only about two to two to ten percent of people who get a positive fecal occult blood test actually have something of an adenoma or a carcinoma. Nine out of ten people who have a positive fecal occult blood will have a colonoscopy and be clear they won't have an adenoma or a carcinoma. So when you look at that, you have to balance it up. Is that a good screening test? Well, if it picks up most people, okay, good. But we also know there's people who don't or have a negative test that still have that. So there's other symptoms that GPs will go through, things like uh, you know change of bowel habits or weight loss, pain, obstruction. So it's a screening test. Is it useful? Yes, for people who it's in positive in. <laughs> if it's negative, if other signs are there, GPs will send them on for further investigation, regardless of the screening test result. Well, I haven't had any weight loss during COVID <laughs> uh, restrictions in 2020, so I think that's a good sign. <laughs> it's encouraging. Mm. Uh, and so, again, we look at that. So the only problem with the fecal aquabus is it's not really accurate. Mm. And so a positive test doesn't always mean it's actually more people are negative with a positive test than positive. So, but... In a wide-scale population, it can help pick up people who are positive and have disease. Bleeding is useful, but it's not the most accurate way of, of testing for it. We do a colonoscopy, and that's a diagnostic test for it. But you still wouldn't write off that screening test as a shit test. <laughs> Probably not, no. <laughs> Leave that in for Charlie. Um, so... So that takes us, okay, so that's a reasonable test with colorectal cancer. Reasonable, has its downsides, but it can still help us detect people who we otherwise might not have detected. So then that brings us to prostate, and we discussed in episode seven. Mm -hmm. Now, again, the problem with prostate is it's difficult to predict the behavior of prostate. Some forms are indolent, some are really aggressive. The most useful uh, test for the prostate is a biopsy, but that comes with significant morbidity. Uh, and so the screening test we use is PSA. Now that's an enzyme in normal tissue as much as in cancerous tissue. Very useful if you've taken the prostate out. Not great, unfortunately, if you've got a normal prostate or an enlarged prostate, you will test positive for it and then go and have a biopsy. And again, more people are positive with PSA without actually having prostate cancer. Exactly. Yeah. So this then causes, it's not a great screening test. Mm. And we often don't recommend it for screening unless they have other risk factors. And then we look at pancreatic cancer. So this is the eighth most common diagnosed cancer in Australia. And it has one of the highest mortality rates of any cancer. So a five-year survival for someone with pancreatic cancer is less than 5%. And people who present with pancreatic cancer, only 15 to 20% have resectable disease because it presents late. Uh, and it's really hard because they often have vague symptoms, you know, abdominal discomfort. It's not a specific, it can be many things before you get pancreatic cancer at the top of the, the differential diagnosis list. And here's the thing, we actually don't have a screening test for pancreatic cancer. And so when that comes up, it's really quite a mixed feeling because you sit there and just go well the ultimate goal is to resect cancer to take it out what's called a whipple's disease which is a huge operation where you take out the pancreas and part of the duodenum so the treatment for it is also 
Severe. Very. Mm. And so you sit there and so would you even want to detect it because you sit there and just go, we don't have a really good treatment for it that isn't a huge operation. Which brings us to cervical cancer. So this is the fourth most common global uh, cancer, but it's only 11th most common in Australia. And so when we start comparing, you can realize this is mainly in developing world that this disease is really prevalent. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at it, you know, 2018, there was 570,000 people with cervical cancer. There was around eight or 900 in Australia uh, per year at that time. And so 90% of the deaths are in low to middle income countries. And we have the, the causative agent is human papillomavirus. So we know there's over 100 different types of HPV. Uh, 14 of these types are associated with cancer. But 70% of cervical cancer is associated with type 16 and type 18. And so this is a, it's a virus that's a circular DNA, uh, circular double-stranded DNA, uh, and, and it produces eight proteins. But what it is, it's associated with 99.7% of cervical cancers. Mm-hmm. So if we look at the epidemiology of this, the, there's evidence that 40% of young women uh, get HPV infections, uh, peak in their teens and early 20s. Uh, it's, it's been estimated that up to you know 80% of sexually active adults get uh, at least one anogenital HPV infection. Uh, And unfortunately, condoms only offer partial protection because it doesn't cover all genital contact. Uh, And we know the risk factors for this is is the number of lifetime sexual partners a a person has. And again, the transmission is through bodily fluids or contact with with mucous membranes. Uh, And so the vast majority of these infections, though, are subclinical, asymptomatic. Uh, And so the affected areas uh, for women is the vulva, vagina, and cervix. And for for men, it's the, you know, urethra, it's the penis, it's the scrotum. Uh, There's anal involvement uh, as well. And what we know when we look at the virus itself, HPV 6 and 11 are the main cause for genital warts. Whereas we said, HPV 16 and 18, 70% of cervical carcinoma related 85% of cervical adenocarcinoma and causes 90% of anal cancers. The prognosis of people is that the average duration of infection is 6 to 12 months. So Mm. 90% of people will be HPV negative within 24 months of infection. So of those that don't, when they have a low-grade lesion what we call LSIL, so it's called low-grade squamous intraepithelial lesion, 60% of these regress. Mm. And then 30% will stay the same as low-grade, and then 10% will get worse. And so then we've got the high-grade lesion, and so 30% of these regress, 60% persist, and 10% progress to carcinoma within 2 to 10 years. When we go looking for HPV in a screening test, it is the cause for cervical cancer, which is why it's an excellent marker for screening. Mm-hmm. And if it's there and persisting, then this person's at risk of cervical carcinoma. 
There's more to explore with the cervical screening test. We'll do that with our cytologist in just a moment. As we mentioned previously, our cytologist is joining us now, uh, Dr. Koz Fusco, Doctor of Health Science, Master of Medical Science, Pathology, and Fellow of the International Academy of Cytology. Welcome to this pathological life. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Now, the previous guidelines for cervical screening was two-yearly screening from the age 16 onwards or sexually active. Mm -hmm. Now it's five-yearly from the age 25. Why the change? Well, it's been a big change uh, from uh, um, our conventional two-year recall to a five-year recall. Um, well, it's, let's, let's start by it's been really well established that human papillomavirus is the causative agent of cervical cancer. Mm-hmm. And most HPV infections are transient. In other words, they only last about six to 24 months. Um, it's very common in women, uh, especially under the age of 25. And it's... Uh, <laughs> Maybe it's a likelihood of them a bit more sexually active and in that age period also might have multiple partners. So the detection of HPV in women under the age of 25 can lead to over-treatment of uh, transient infections. And so women in this age group, especially in a two-year recall, fall into that bracket. Uh, persistent HPV infections, are, especially the high-risk types, that's what we really want to find. And so um, they lead to cervical cancer. So the HPV cervical screening test has a negative predictive value of about 99%, which is fantastic. Mm. In other words, if it's negative, it's 99% chance of it being negative, which is really high for a test. And a sensitivity of over 90%, which is again, for a testing regime, it's really good. So this enables us to extend the recall to a five-year period at age 25 quite comfortably. Uh, and CSTs, um, cervical screening tests and HPV DNA testing, is like really, really accurate. And it takes over from the old conventional pap smear, the old glass slide that um, oh, some yes. of our listeners might be uh, very familiar with. <laughs> um, they looked at the cellular changes in, on, on a slide, whereas the HPV looks at the DNA changes on a molecular level. And so its sensitivity is over 90% for the current CST. But if you compare that to the older system, the glass slide, it only ranged to about 75 to 85% at best. For someone who's never been screened, what is the, the process for a, for a GP or for a patient to mm-hmm. present with, with that? What's the process? Okay. For someone who's never been screened, I think it's very important to treat them like someone who has been screened. Ah. So you don't really differentiate, but you take as much history as you can. Let's go with this scenario. A patient presents for screening. You want to seek as much history as you can, and it's very important to note every clinical symptom down. Even if you don't think it's relevant, it might in fact be very relevant for us. So if you can establish that the patient has never been screened, then the patient is eligible for what we say a self-collected swab. But there are caveats. The patient has to be over 30, and they have to be collected on premises, on a doctor's premises. They can't take it home, they can't do it in their own place and then return it to you. It's not that simple. So, the swab is then sent in to us here at Climpath. It is tested for high-risk HPV DNA. There is one limiting factor. It's no liquid-based cytology is collected, so we can't do a co-test for cytology at that time. So if the test comes back positive, 
a liquid-based cytology has to be physician-collected. Right. And visualising a well-visualised cervix at the same time. The same process occurs um, for collection as you wouldn't say in a like conventional pap smear. It's a speculum insertion, uh, visualisation of the cervix, collection of the sample. The sample is then placed if you're doing a um, conventional, if you're doing a liquid-based cytology. If a person's never been screened and they object to being speculum examined, then you can give them the swab. But it's best to collect it by from a physician collected. So do a conventional cervical screening test. Collect it, place it into a liquid-based cytology medium, send it into the laboratory. It's processed. Then the results are sent out to you. The results are not like the old results of a pap smear. We now issue a risk stratification. So in other words, each result comes back with either a low risk, an intermediate risk, or a high risk stratification. That's the most likelihood scenario of them developing cervical cancer. So for people then that fit into who are being screened, who have mm-hmm. had the screening for you know two years regularly, let's say they've had you know 18 months by their last one, they're about to go come in. Is the next two-year one their first five, or do they actually go and say, hey, you don't need one for another four years or whenever the five years clicks over? We have to remember that the new cervical screening program started in 2017. So that's three, four, going into our fourth year now. So a two-year recall doesn't really doesn't really exist anymore. Mm. But there are some women who think that they still are on the two-year recall. Yeah. We must remember that some women don't actually present when they're meant to come, uh, and so they still think they're on the two-year recall. So if a woman had a cervical screen prior to 2017, then they had a conventional pap smear. If there was negative, they would have been asked to come back in two years. Then when they came back in that two-year period, it would have been time for the newer cervical screening test. So then they get the CST HPV DNA test. And if that's negative, they're then asked to come back in five years' time. That's when they they join the five-year recall program. Now, there shouldn't be any women on the two-year recall at the moment because, like I said, we started in 2017. Mm. So that kind of negates that two-year recall unless they haven't presented for their, for their recall, for, 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 their, for their smear. Sometimes they're not too willing to come forward. Sometimes they're just too busy to come forward. Sometimes they just forget mm. to come forward. So if they fall into that category, they are underscreened women. Okay, and what does that mean when you say underscreened? Okay, underscreened. If, if you go back to underscreen means that you don't come back in your recall period. So for the current period, we have a five-year recall. Now, no one in this current period uh, is uh, because we haven't been doing it for five years. But in this current period, it would be a seven years since your last screen. If you've not had one for seven years since your last screen in the current five-year recall, then you're underscreened. In the older system, it was your two-year recall plus two years on top of that, which would have been four years. So if we're going by that, we're looking at underscreened women who've never had a cervical screening test. That's the women we're trying to, to look at mm-hmm. in, this, in this procedure. Yeah. Okay. So from a procedural perspective, mm-hmm. is there things that doctors can do that makes it easier for us or, or sort of more accurate or better to, to, to do it from a procedural point of view? Is there things that you would recommend? Sure. Look, it's a, it, it's a pretty straightforward procedure. The um, speculum uh, visualisation of the cervix. It's just a cervical scrape, just like they used to do in the old system. Wipe away excess mucus. Excess mucus can hinder the process in terms of 
it might not allow a, a accurate and appropriate collection of the of the cellular material. Oh. And so you think you've got a good scrape, but what you're doing is you're putting in the liquid base cytology is mainly mucus, and you're not going to get a good cellular sample. <laughs> so once the the cervix is scraped with a nice 360 rotation of a cervix brush of the cervical loss, rinse it in the cervical vial and the liquid base medium. That sample contains enough cellular material to do a HPV test, a reflex liquid-based cytology test, and also adjunctive testing like chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomonas, uh, and all that can be done. Um, mark as much clinical information as you possibly can on the request form. That is gold. That is vital. Mm. Um, because sometimes women who women under the age of 25 who present to their GP have a cervical screen and, and then it's sent in and away we go. Only problem is women under the age of 25 are not permitted to have a cervical screen under the current system. Screening starts at 25 upon invitation. If they haven't, even if they were screened in the prior old system, if everything was negative, they're not due to come back until they're 25. So this is a real problem area. If the patient is symptomatic, not a problem. Everyone gets screened. But it must be remembered, you must put that on the form. That is vital. And that's one of the things that really helps us in, in for when people present for a procedure. And when you say symptomatic, what mm. what are you what symptoms do we need to actually okay. stay? Okay, when we're looking at people who are symptomatic, we're looking at people who come and present to you clinically with postcoital bleeding, okay. intramenstrual bleeding, uh, prolonged abnormal discoloured bloody discharge. Um, someone who's had an early sexual debut uh, before the age of 14, um, they will undergo testing, but they will also undergo co-testing. They will have the liquid-based cytology medium as well as the HPV test. Then when we do just a standard test, let's say a doctor writes pap mm-hmm. smear on there. Yep. Screening test, but they've just li- literally written sp- like uh, pap smear. What yep. test do they get? They will get, if the lady is completely routine... She's never had anything before in terms of any form of abnormalities. She'll get a HPV DNA test. If that test is then positive, which we'll move on to another section when when we get a positive molecular test. Mm -hmm. If that test is positive, we're looking at HPV 16 and 18 and also non-16 and 18 variants. But we'll start with 16 and 18. When that's positive and it comes back positive, the the liquid-based cytology is reflexed. Okay, so that will be done automatically. But that is only informative because it doesn't matter if either 16 or 18 positivity, direct to colposcopy. But it's very important to do liquid-based cytology tests to inform the colposcopist of what they might potentially see. So regardless of the OBC result, it goes off to um, recommendation for colposcopy, given a high-risk stratification report, and hopefully then referred on for colposcopy. Now, for a non-1618, this becomes a little bit more contentious because as of February this year, February 1st, 2021, mm-hmm. there have been some slight changes which are going to cause an enormous amount of confusion. We know that and we're prepared for that. Mm-hmm. And we always welcome phone calls of greatly welcome. Um, so if you have a non-1618, of course, it's reflexed to, to liquid-based cytology. If the liquid-based cytology is negative or of a low grade, it's asked to come back in 12 months. If the liquid-based cytology is found to be possible high-grade, high-grade, well, then what we'll do is automatically that gets um, referred on to colposcopy. And once again, hopefully the colposcopist will take on the information that's there from the liquid-based cytology. Of course, it can come back unsatisfactory. And if it comes back unsatisfactory, 
repeat in six or 12 weeks, and we'll go again. But this is where it becomes interesting. The unsatisfactory part is the liquid-based cytology, not the HPV test. The HPV test stands. So if you're repeating one of these, you only ask for the liquid-based cytology because that's all you get. <laughs> this is where the important part comes for the February 1st of this year. For the 12-month repeaters for the non-16-18 variants, so th those types of HPV which come back positive, the HPV is positive, but the liquid-based cytology is negative or low-grade, then a recommendation for repeat again in another 12 months comes along. We won't send them off to colposcopy. We'll ask for repeat in 12 months. Prior to February of this year, they would have been sent straight to colposcopy, right. placing an enormous amount of strain on our colposcopy clinics. And not only that, it caused an undue amount of stress and anxiety on the patient as well. So on the second 12-month repeat, mm -hmm. if the HPV is negative, happy days, we go back to five-year repeat. If the HPV is positive, it doesn't matter what the reflex shows on the LBC, it's recommended straight to a colposcopy. When we talk about getting a, uh, you know, 12 months or something to that, do we notify the clinic and say you need to call this patient or is this something that goes into the registry and then they're recalled by the registry or how, how do we actually yeah. notify that you are now 12 months to your next one or you are five yeah. years to your next one? How do we... First of all, on the bottom of our report, we put a recommendation. And that recommendation will say either repeat in 12 months, repeat in five years, refer to colposcopy. So in this instance, repeating in 12 months, we'll put that recommendation down. But the National Cervical Screening Registry also note that and then send a letter out saying you have had a abnormal result and have been requested to be repeated in 12 months. Right. You are now due. Do we know what rate of uh, tests are unsatisfactory? Meaning that, okay, it's come in... Um, either it's unsatisfactory for whatever reason, let's, let's assume, let's say the whole thing's unsatisfactory, or the, the liquid base cytology is unsatisfactory. What percentages are we talking about there? Okay, we're talking about very small percentages compared to the old system. Um, if we can remember, the system's only been going since 2017. So in terms of raw data and performance measures, they're not all quite there yet, and we haven't had iron clad performance measures sent to us via the federal government because we're still collating. But we've got enough data to show us what the trend is over the last three years. And the unsatisfactory rate's been one of the most steadiest of those trends. It sits around about 0.2 of a percent. So it's really low. And if we compare that to the older system, an acceptable unsatisfactory rate was between 2 and 5%. So we've really increased dramatically on that, I, I think, and I think that's that's really great. That's a quantum increase, uh, or, or in in yeah. in improvement. Well, you have to take some some factors in on that as well. The, the factors being that the old system relied on human visualization of a glass slide, right. which was often blood stained. Um, obscured by increased amount of polymorphs, um, very thick in some instances, sparse in others. So you had a variation where now you have a standard molecular-based test, which is very accurate. It tells you if it's unsatisfactory. Now, it's very rare that one of these is unsatisfactory, but there are reasons. Excess mucus. Um, <laughs> we've had problems with lubricant, which contain a, a carbamyl polymer in there, which makes it very uh, difficult to then run the PCR. Um, and things like that come into play, but they're very few and far between. And you're only looking for the DNA. 
Just finally then, there might be some anxiety with the change. Mm -hmm. Mainly even GPs will be asked about the patient. You know, I'm 24 or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. I've gone from seeing people screened every two years to now screened every five years. And so like, you know, how we know we're not missing cancers in that and, you know, how do we provide that, I guess, reassurance or or what's the information we know there? Well, if we go to... um look at why we, we, we changed to, 20, to the age of 25. Cancer under the age of 40 in women is extremely rare. Uh, and, uh, and under the age of 20 is really rare. I'll, I'll give you some examples. Let's go with some statistics from uh, overseas and US data. So if we're looking at cancer in women under the age of 40, which is the area of our interest, of all those cancers found in women under the age of 40, 78% were in women aged 30 to 39 years. 21% of those cancers were in women aged 20 to 29 years. And 1%, less than 1% in some studies, were in women under the age of 20. So when you're dealing with 1% and less than 1%, you're dealing with something which is incredibly rare, incredibly easy to, to detect, and very slow progressing. So if you're looking for something from a SIN2 to a SIN3, progression rate to cervical cancer is greater than 10 years. So if we're testing every five years, and if you're looking at that, the Australian system being starting at age 25 is really conservative in my point of view, because the original one wanted to start uh, at age 30. So if you find that, uh, I think we're doing the ladies uh, a really good service because the rate of finding um, uh, an SCC is really low. That's a squamous or carcinoma, by the way. It's really, really low. Thank you very much. That was completely informative. Obviously, it went over my head, but for all our listeners, GPs, medical students and other uh, health professionals, uh, wonderful to have you here. Dr. Cos Fusco, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.